With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Clara Jeffrey. I'm the editor-in-chief of Mother Jones, and I'm so excited to be here on stage with Congresswoman Pramaya Jayapal. She represents the Seattle area and is the first Indian-American woman to serve in Congress. Is that right? That is right. And she's been called a rising star in the Democratic Party by both Nancy Pelosi and Bernie Sanders. We have a (laughs) unity candidate here. Um, Prior to her election to Congress, she was an advocate for immigrant rights and racial justice. In Congress, she has also been an outspoken leader on college access, health care, climate justice, and corporate greed. So everybody, please give another round of applause. Thank you. There's so many topics we could discuss today, but I just wanted to set up a little bit by talking about um, a little bit of your biography. So you came to this country at the age of 16. I did. By yourself. Correct. To go to college. Smarty pants. Um, <laughs> how, long, how long were you separated from your parents? Were they able to come and go? Did you get to go home or were you sort of over here for a while? You know, my, um, my dad, for whatever reason, really believed that an American education was the best education that I could possibly have, that I would have the most opportunity here. They had very little money. My dad had done fine and then lost his job. And so it was a big deal to send me here by myself, but they took every last little bit that they had. And so um, I was only able to go home once a year. They didn't travel here most of the time. Um, I had, there was no Skype back then. So I got one phone call home a year, um, which I would use usually on New Year's um, from the dorm phone, because that was back when there were dorm phones and, yeah. and rotary phones and all of that. Um, and I remember my sophomore year of college, I used my one phone call to call my dad and tell him that instead of being an economics major, I was going to be an English literature major. And then I had to hold the phone away from my ear like this as he screamed at me and said, I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. Um, but it was a big sacrifice, I think. And I don't think I fully understood that until I had a child myself and until that child turned 16. And I thought about what it meant to send your kid across the ocean and know that you might never live on the same continent as, as them. And in fact, that's, that's true. And the, I mean, it must have been really quite scary for you as well to be younger than the rest of your classmates to be separated from your did you have a support community you went to Georgetown is that right I went to Georgetown um, I had an older sister who was three years older and was here in the United States before uh, before me um, but she also you know we it, it's hard you come over and you really kind of are focused on just trying to make it through and make your parents proud and um, I had a couple of aunts who lived here in the United States um, but it was, I think I pushed all of the hard parts out of my head mm-hmm. until recently I, I w- I'm writing a book and I just finished it. It'll be out in June, um, called Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. And in the first chapter, 
um, I write about how I went home and my mother had a treasure trove of all my letters she had saved. And I started rereading them and I just wept because of the homesickness, the effort to try to fit into a new country, mm. all of those things that I think I never really felt like I had the luxury to explore. You know, you just, you were here, it was an opportunity, so much had been sacrificed, you had to, you had to make it work. So after graduation, you briefly became an investment banker. <laughs> yes. Was your dad happy about that? Yes, because there were three <laughs> professions I was supposed to be. It was doctor, lawyer, or engineer. And when I said I was going to be an English major, he was like, how are you going to make things work? And I said, I'll get the same job with an English degree that I would have with an economics degree. That meant at that time, this was the mid-1980s when Mike Milken was king and leverage buyouts and junk bonds were, you know, the hot thing around town. And so I went to work for Payne Weber. Um, for two years in leverage buyouts, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was fantastic because I learned I really did not want to do that, um, <laughs> which I tell young people all the time. Jobs are good to teach you what you don't want to do as well as what you do want to do. Um, but it also taught me a lot. I mean, I got very good at numbers and spreadsheets and people look at me now and they think I'm a, you know, liberal from Seattle, social justice oriented person, but I can find an error in a spreadsheet like that. So I like budgets. Um, it was helpful to me during my nonprofit career. Um, so yeah. Well, I hope you're putting that to good use on the committees that you sit on. Um, I'm trying to. <laughs> so. You first gained national recognition following 9-11 when you, you founded um, an organization that then kind of became another one that was about immigrant rights and Muslim rights in particular. I'm curious, was that was being Hindi an asset to that work of really sticking up for Muslims or a wrinkle or how did that how did that work? Being Hindu, um, you know, uh, I was raised as a Hindu. I, I suppose I would consider myself one, um, but... It wasn't so much about that. It was really about the civil liberties abuses that I saw. I had, it took me 17 years to become a U.S. citizen and a whole alphabet soup of visas. So I had literally just become a U.S. citizen in 2000. And then 9-11 happened. And I think the, you know, the way in which suddenly there was an us and a them, and I was in the them category because I didn't look a certain way. Um, and then started hearing about the civil liberties abuses against Muslims, uh, Sikh Americans, Arab Americans. Um, all of that felt to me completely anathema to what I had just committed myself to the year before in becoming a U.S. citizen um, and the Constitution and the ideals. And I think that I, I don't think I intended to start an organization, but I I felt so strongly that I had to speak out and that ended up being, um, you know, the largest immigrant rights organization in the state, one of the largest in the country. We successfully sued um, President Bush at the time for uh, the deportation of around 4,000 Somalis across the country. We won. Um, and I think I realized then that perhaps if I hadn't been a citizen, I would have been even more afraid. That was a scary time. But um, it felt to me like the most patriotic thing I could do, having become a U.S. citizen, is stand up for our Constitution. And did, did you evoke that? Because you evoked becoming a citizen recently when you gave your sort of summation for um, the House Judiciary's impeachment thing. Did it help you then translate to people who hadn't thought about 
you hadn't had to go through that step of becoming an American. I often think that the people who have done that have a better sense of the sort of responsibilities of citizenship. Yeah, I talk about that with my husband all the time, you know, because <laughs> we um, it is an incredible privilege and an honor to become a U.S. citizen. And I never thought I would be so emotionally affected by the experience of, of pledging allegiance to a new country. But I was I was deeply moved by it. And you see all of the people in the room from all over the world, you know, and and they're the lucky ones who get to be here. And you take that seriously, that responsibility to pay it forward, and therefore the responsibility of the oath of office, becoming a, a member of Congress, but even just as an American, um, what our duty is really to be engaged in democracy and to do what we can to uphold it. So you've obviously uh, been a big um, advocate both in Congress and um, and before that for uh, Muslim Americans, but and particularly the Muslim ban that Trump passed. I'm curious what your take is on, he just extended it to a bunch of countries. Yeah. Um, and just for the audience, I'll read them. It's Nigeria, Burma, Eritrea, Kyrgyzstan, Sudan, and Tanzania. What's your analysis of why these countries yeah. were picked? It's not entirely logical. Yeah, um, but what is these days? Um, but, um, so I sit on the Judiciary Committee. I uh, After 9-11, we did see sort of a version of a Muslim ban mm-hmm. that many people don't remember, um, but it was called special registration. And there were 24 out of 25 countries, majority Muslim countries. The 25th was North Korea, where people were asked to be fingerprint required to be fingerprinted. And actually, many people ended up in deportation proceedings out of that that falsely, many of them. So I knew about that. And I had literally just been elected to Congress when the first Muslim ban went into effect. I was elected on the same night that Donald Trump was elected. Um, and I that must have been a real, uh, that's a, emotional whole, that's a whole another, <laughs> another story. Um, but I, as soon as I heard about the Muslim ban, I rushed to the airport. I was one of the first, along with Jerry Nadler, our mm-hmm. chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Nita, uh, Nidia Velasquez and others in New York, some in California. Um, and we were able to stop a plane, literally, from taking off on the tarmac um, that had some people on it. We filed an amicus brief immediately for... Um, a, uh, a temporary stay of, of that plane taking off. And so going through all of that and seeing how, what chaos there was and what heartbreak there was has been something that I've been focused on since I got into Congress. So this was finally having the majority, Democrats having the majority, but then also needing to do the work across our caucus to make sure we could get unity, which, which we did. And I helped lead as the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. It's Congresswoman Judy Chu's bill, the No Ban Act, to reverse those. And what we did is we added in um, what what I call the African ban, um, which is this most recent ban. And if you look at those countries, um, five out of six are Muslim-majority countries. And um, they really make very, very little sense. So Sudan is one of the countries. Now, in Sudan's case, it's a slightly different situation where Sudanese are just not eligible for the diversity visa. But the diversity visa is the way most Sudanese come to the United Mm -hmm. States. Um, And I had literally just two weeks ago or three weeks ago come back from Sudan and sitting with the new civilian government that had overthrown the military dictatorship of 30 years and desperately wanting the United States to help. And as we're sitting there, 
with Congresswoman Bass, another California congresswoman. Um, as we're sitting there, we hear that Sudan is going to be added to the list. The theoretical argument for adding these countries to the list is that they don't meet a certain standard of security in reporting lost and stolen passports of, you know, going through certain security measures. But that makes no sense because there are many countries that don't meet that threshold. Um, the way in which the visas are controlled, it makes no sense. And I could go into the details, but the bottom line of this is that I think that these are all parts of coordinated efforts, primarily run by Stephen Miller out of the White House and a very coordinated anti-immigrant movement in the country that is interested in stopping all immigration to the United States, not just what they might call undocumented immigration, not just, you know, southern border immigration. But if you look at what has happened uh, refugee resettlement almost to zero. This is a program that evangelicals call the crown jewel of American humanitarianism, as Speaker Pelosi always likes to say. Um, they have stopped essentially asylum seeking in this country, and you've written so much about this. Um, they have stopped through the wealth tax, which is what they call the public charge. I call it the wealth tax, mm -hmm. which essentially says you have to have a certain amount of wealth in order to be a citizen, in order to even apply to be a permanent resident here. Um, all of these things are designed to lower immigration to the United States of America. That's what I think the African ban and the Muslim ban are with a particular xenophobic um, and racial uh, targeting, uh, religious targeting of Muslims. I mean, Kyrgyzstan is, a, is interesting also because they are essentially a former Soviet state that's been moving towards NATO and Europe. Right. Um, and that seems sort of troubling in a whole other way. It um, is. It is. That's a really good point. And Nigeria is interesting because Nigeria, of course, is huge. And um, China is actively courting Nigeria with investments, proposed investments, so that they can they can further their one belt, one road initiative. So, you know, all of this is turning these countries away from the United States towards China. So there are many long term implications for our global leadership in the world um, with these very short sighted programs, which, by the way, national security experts uh, have weighed in and said, including Republicans, have said this makes no sense for our national security because we want these relationships with Muslims in many of these countries. It doesn't help us to um, target and and you know make Muslims feel like they're not welcome. If I might just say one thing about the human toll of these policies, because it's easy to talk about them in big terms and and strategic terms, but I just want to say that the the hurt. Um, to the hearts of Muslim Americans, Muslims and Muslim Americans across the country, to immigrants across the country of, of different persuasions, um, is so profound. Um, and it comes into play in so many ways, uh, Iranian Americans being stopped at the border. And for somebody like me, who is an immigrant, one of 14 naturalized citizens out of 535 in Congress, um, the constant belief that is being projected at us that we have to go through another loyalty test. It's not enough just to be a citizen. There is another loyalty test. If you're a permanent resident or you have a valid visa, you can never be comfortable in thinking that you actually will be able to stay, that there will be one initiative after another that is constantly targeting you. And that level of fear permeates the immigrant community in a way that I have not seen since 9-11. 
So I, th- I feel like the candidates um, have a lot to say about why Trump's immigration, asylum, refugee programs are horrible on many different levels. They haven't done that much to lay out what their program would be. Um, what what do you think a real immigration reform um, package could look like that could actually pass yeah. through Congress? Or are we sort of at a point where that's so far off that all we can do is sort of fix what's been done? Well, the thing is, immigration, the question of how we solve immigration is not actually a policy problem. It is a purely political problem. We know what the answer is. And actually, immigration policy in this country has never been about policy. It has always been about who we are as a country and what we're willing to stand up for. We need a whole new moral imagination on the role of immigration in the United States. Um, in 2013, we passed a bipartisan bill. Congress, I wasn't in Congress at the time, passed a bipartisan bill with 68 bipartisan votes um, for humane immigration reform. It was not as good as it should have been. But we would have gotten some critical components, legalization for 11 million undocumented immigrants with a path to citizenship. We would have protected the dreamers. We would have uh, strengthened our family immigration system with some problems in that final bill around family immigration. We would have provided for workers to actually have rights on the job, going back to much more of a flexible immigration system like circular flow migration, Mm. recognize that not everybody who comes here actually wants to stay here. They, they come here because of opportunity, because they need to for economics, but they would like to be able to go back. And the bigger the wall is on the southern border, the more border troops you have, the more you are going to stop that flow from happening. Um, today, I think we have seen the way in which this president has abused immigration. So there is much more to do just to even get back to where we were, but also a recognition of broken immigration policy that uh, stretched over Republican and Democratic administrations before Trump came in. Mid-1990s, Secretary, uh, President Clinton um, and the passage of IRA-IRA, which was the Immigration Reform Act of, of the mid-90s, actually started the cementing of the criminalization of migration. And if we don't go back to that and reverse some of those bad effects of the mid-1990s, then we will continue the problems we have. Um, we have to deal with detention in addition to humane immigration reform. That would take away a lot of the problems with, with interior enforcement and detention. But just imagine we have 56,000 people every night that we are locking up in immigration jails, mostly operated for-profit prisons like GEO. Um, the vast majority of those people have never been charged with a crime, have never committed a crime, much less been charged with a crime. So these are asylum seekers, they're refugees, other things like that. So, so would you ban private institutions from running immigration I would. And what it, about just prisons in general? I would take private... I don't think that in, incarceration should be a profit-making enterprise. So I would take out... And we have a transition over three years to a government-run uh, system, but also investing in humane alternatives to detention. But realize that if we passed immigration reform, none of these people would actually be in detention. So we would save taxpayer dollars, and um, we would invest in the identity of the country in a humane, compassionate way. 
So one of your other signature issues has been furthering access to health care, and you're a proponent of Medicare for All. Um, you were among the people that uh, Elizabeth Warren consulted with to come up with her position. Um, why did you endorse Bernie over her? Well, look, I, I think um, I'm, a, I'm a strong progressive. I co-chair the Congressional Progressive Caucus, about 40% of the Democratic Caucus in the House. And uh, I feel so fortunate that we actually have two strong progressive candidates to choose from for president. Um, I have a long relationship with Bernie Sanders. I really believe that Bernie Sanders created the movement for health care reform in this country, for single-payer universal health care. Uh, not created the movement, but created the momentum for the movement. Let me put it that way. And uh, I am the lead sponsor of Medicare for All. Um, I have worked very closely with him on immigration issues. He has the best immigration platform. Um, I've worked closely with Elizabeth, too, and she's fantastic, um, particularly on corporate reform and uh, getting money out of politics. Um, we do things together all the time. Um, I did not think she should have done uh, what she did, but I also defended the ability for people to think about how you get to universal health care a little bit more broadly than perhaps some uh, some progressives did. But at the end of the day, for me, I am a brown immigrant woman. I do not have the luxury to look at my choices through a single lens. Racism, sexism, uh classism are all intertwined. And I care about foreign policy. I care about immigration policy. I care about healthcare policy. I care about in income inequality. And on all of those fronts, Bernie Sanders was the person that was most closely aligned for me. But in addition to that, I'm an organizer. That's what I did for 20 years before coming to Congress. I don't believe that any single person in the White House is going to make the kind of structural, bold change that we need to make. That can only happen if we re-engage a different kind of democracy, if we get young people, folks of color who have given up on us, frankly, um, given up on democracy, given up on government, to be engaged. And Bernie Sanders has this remarkable ability to both inspire a different generation and a multi-ethnic, multi-generational group of people, but also to speak with authenticity and sincerity to a very disillusioned group of working class voters who hear him and believe he will fight for them. They believe in his authenticity. And that trust is something that is so deeply necessary and so deeply lacking right now in our system. So I want to unpack um, something that you said a little bit. Uh, and maybe the best way to do that is to uh, talk about how yesterday, or maybe it was the day before time, it's flying so fast, um, AOC and some other folks who are kind of definitely in the Medicare for All and the Bernie camp um, signaled a bit that, you know, we might not get Medicare for All in four years after all, like, you, could just be the public option, and that's that's the the the, the best of the bad alternatives, or however you want to put it. But I, I'm curious: is that different than what Warren did, or what some of the others did? Like, and and more to the point, I I hear what you're saying, and what the Sanders campaign is saying that like the momentum is everything to get these things passed. But that said, it is going to be Congress, not the president, that hashes out. Healthcare reform and, and um, 
And that may not happen on the timetable or to the degree that, that yeah. you and uh, Senator Sanders would yeah. propose. So where are people left to sort of feel disappointed in, in the movement if it doesn't get there? Is, is that something that you run the risk of? Well, there were five questions. I'm sorry about that. That, that was question, a question pile let, me, let me try, let me try and answer as many of them as I can. Um, I have not spoken to Representative Ocasio-Cortez since she said that, but I have a feeling that sometimes, you know, comments are taken out of context. And of course, she has such an enormous, mm-hmm. uh, um, following that everything she says immediately goes to the top. But what I will say is that, um, I believe that we can pass Medicare for all. I'm not naive about that. I know what we're fighting against. In one presidential term. But it all depends on what happens in the president we elect. If we don't elect a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren, it's not probably not going to happen. Because part of what Bernie is running on is single-payer universal health care. He is boldly talking about it. And if you look at the polling across the country, you know, seven and 10 voters in New Hampshire, six and 10 in Iowa, um, even half of the voters that support Amy Klobuchar believe in Medicare for all. So what is happening? Let's just dissect what's happening here. You have a policy that 95% of Democrats believe in. 95% 95% of Democrats believe in universal in. coverage or universal a public option or a single, me- nope, okay. a single payer Medicare for all system. Now you then have hundreds of millions of dollars that pour in from insurance companies and from pharmaceutical companies. And you have some democratic candidates who decide to attack an idea that actually every other developed country in the world has, except for the United States of America and decide to say, well, no, that's too pie in the sky. You can't possibly have that. And so, of course, that brings the numbers down. And if, depending on how you look at polling, if you ask somebody, do you want to give up your private insurance? They'll say no. A good portion of them, the support goes down. I think goes down to like 57% or something like that. And then the pollsters stop right there. Now, we did the next question, which is, Would you give up your private insurance if you could keep your doctor? Support goes even higher than it was before. And I'm talking about overall support now um, across Republicans, Democrats, and independents. So the question to me is, why do we keep standing up for the status quo? Let me tell you what the status quo gets us. The status quo gets us half a million Americans who file for bankruptcy every year because of medically related costs. The status quo gets us 70 million people who are uninsured or underinsured. The status quo gets us insulin prices that are 10 times as much in the United States as they are in Canada. The status quo gets us spending of $55 trillion over the next 10 years if we do nothing to our healthcare system, which is at this moment double what every other industrialized country in the world spends. And you would think if we spent that much, we would have good outcomes. But hey, guess what? We've got the highest maternal mortality in the world, of our peer countries, excuse me, not in the world. We have the highest infant mortality of all of our peer countries. And we have the lowest life expectancy of all of our peer countries. So let's say Senator Sanders wins, but the Senate does not flip. Is Medicare for all going to pass? Well, that would be tough. You know, there's no question you've got to have Congress in there. Okay, so what if what if the Senate flips, but we... I mean, I, I just... I'm trying to unpack this because I, I do feel that one of the things that's happening is that um, the, the proponents of Medicare for all 
believe in it firmly, and I think almost everybody wants something heading that way, close to that way. It just it's the timetable, it's the implementation, right? Um, but there's not really a discussion of what what needs to happen. It's as if it would spring fully formed from the head of Bernie Sanders, and <laughs> and that and that's just not the way legislation works, right? No, it happens through a movement. I mean, Bernie Sanders helped make a movement for right. Medicare for all. You know, city councils across the country. I think maybe San Francisco has passed a resolution. I mean, there are there are real there's a real push. Thirty labor unions, and I'm proud because I'm the obviously the lead sponsor in yeah. the House. Um, we have over half of the Democrats. We've had four. Uh, major hearings in the House of Representatives this year, this last year alone, for the first time ever. Um, and so we've made tremendous progress on this. And it doesn't spring out of the head of Bernie Sanders for sure. But if you don't have a president who will help make the case and you don't have a movement that will help make the case, then you can't do it. I've got a bill. It's 125 pages. It will probably be 100 pages more before we're done if we actually end up down that process. But the point is Americans deserve universal guaranteed health care. Don't try to tell us we don't, you know, um, and that's what I feel like the message from outside that we're fighting against all the time is. And if we have a president that says, yes, we deserve this and we will figure out how to make it happen. You would see everything shift in this country. You would see Congress shift. Look at President Trump. You think he had the Senate behind him when he came into the White House? Remember those days when Republicans actually used to stand up to, to Donald Trump? But he made that happen. Now, I'm not comparing Bernie Sanders <laughs> okay. to Donald Trump. Let me make that clear. But um, what I'm saying is that a president can do a lot with leadership, and so can a movement. So a lot of countries that have a have universal state-administered uh, single-payer plans, nevertheless, there's still some form of private insurance, private coverage. And I'm curious why part of the messaging has been, no, 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 there's not going to be any of that. I'm, first of all, I'd, I'm not quite sure how that's possible. But but in but why is it important to the Medicare for All movement to say that's not going to exist? Well, private insurance will continue to exist, just not for duplicative services. So in my plan, um, and it's the same in Bernie's plan in the Senate, um, you can have private insurance can be there, but they'll have to remake themselves because they won't be able to do med- what we're what we're saying is my plan expands Medicare um, so that it includes much more. It includes vision, dental, all the things that you would actually need, reproductive care, those kinds of things, long term care. So insurance companies that sell additional plans like Medicare Advantage, which are very expensive, people like them, but they're extremely expensive and they don't give you everything that you need those plans would not be necessary anymore. So an insurance company wouldn't be able to provide duplicative coverage, which, by the way, is the same thing for Medicare right now. It's just that it's a smaller, less comprehensive set of services. Um, so insurance companies can exist. And you know what? When when anything in any other industry, like um, let's take taxi cabs. When Lyft and Uber came along, people said, oh, great innovations, you know, and taxi cabs will just have to adjust. Well, I would say the same thing on, on private health insurance. They'll have to adjust, but it will be a great innovation that will bring down the cost and will save lives across our country. Um, you had, uh, you met with Andy Beckham last night, I believe. Um, I think one of, one of the, uh, Things that's been kind of burbling up again in this debate and to some extent between the, the Bernie and Warren supporters is after Andy decided to endorse Warren. Adi. Adi, sorry. Adi, yeah. Um, folks went after him, which I think was, you know, generally n- 
frowned upon by pretty much everybody. Um, and there's been a little of that with folks going after the culinary union leaders, um, Bernie supporters going after them because, you know, they haven't endorsed Bernie or gone all the way to that. Do you, do you worry about this in terms of building the broadest possible Look, I, I think that it's over, really overstated because I will tell you that when I endorsed Bernie in 2016 and when I endorse Bernie now, I had a lot of people go after me mm-hmm. who were Clinton supporters and Warren supporters. Did I make that about them? No. Um, are there people out there that we can't control? Absolutely. Do we condone all of that behavior? No, of course not. But... Um, I get a little frustrated with the with the perception that there's a Bernie bro um, and that Bernie bro looks nothing like me, because I can tell you the um, the people that I know that are on the Bernie campaign. And if you look at powerful women of color who are supporting Bernie, there are many of Mm. us and we don't want to be erased by some caricature of a group of people that may or may not be. I will tell you, I'm a little paranoid, but I don't even know if they're Russian bots or if they're real. Like, there are some of them that are real, I'm sure. But if we spend time focusing on the minority of people, Mm -hmm. we are really hurting ourselves. Because at the end of the day, I said this to uh, Senator Warren, you know, she's an incredible candidate. And like I said, when I started, we are so lucky to have two strong progressive candidates. Um, and I think Senator Warren faces particular challenges that are specific to us as women. I understand those challenges. Um, I think that at the end of the day, Trump is both a symptom and a cause. We have to get him out of the White House, and we will unite around whoever the Democratic candidate is. However, we also have to think about how he came to be in the White House And what is the structural change that allowed for somebody like Trump to take advantage of the anger that is legitimately there in the richest country in the world where three people have the same wealth as the bottom 50% of Americans? That's 160 million Americans who don't have opportunity in this country, don't have wealth. Tonight in the United States of America... 500,000 people will be without a home. 100,000 of those are children. So we have real problems in the United States. And my concern is if we get even a Democratic president that isn't willing to take on the big special interests that create these problems, that are lined up outside my office, paid enormous amounts of money just to lobby us, we will end up creating the conditions for a different Donald Trump to emerge in 2024. So I'm going to do everything I can for a strong, bold, progressive candidate. At the end of the day, I'll unify around whoever it is. But let's just be clear, getting Donald Trump out is not going to solve all of our problems. He is both a symptom and a cause. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So Bernie has said he wants to pick someone ideologically close to him and and hopefully either a woman or a person of color or both. Unfortunately, you're not 
eligible since you're a naturalized citizen. So who who do you think he should pick? And do you think if he is in that position, he should pick someone, you know, who's who's in his ideological lane? Or should he pick someone who's more moderate or just thought of in a different way? I'm going to give you such an unsatisfactory oh, answer. Oh, I knew you would. Um, which is, let us just get through the primaries. Let us get there. Okay. Let us get through the primaries. Let us work on these states that are ahead of us. Let us have a vigorous democratic debate about who should be our next president. Um, I really think, I know we all want to unify. We will. But don't stop the debate about these next, and your question wasn't doing this, by the way. This isn't directed at you. But, you know, let us just go through the conversation. Is it okay for somebody to spend $500 million in five weeks to buy an election? Um, I'm not, I'm asking these questions, okay? Is it, is it okay for us to have somebody who doesn't have experience or has really terrible experience with racial justice policies um, in a country that is increasingly suffering disproportionate racial injustice. These are some of the things I think we should be talking about right now, and they shouldn't be seen as attempts to divide the country. They should be seen as real debate about who can lead what we hope will be the greatest nation on, on earth. So we might come back to Bloomberg, but let's turn to some other billionaires. I, um, I didn't say, did you hear me say his name? <laughs> so in Seattle, as in San Francisco, there's tension between the tech companies and the sort of wealth and growth and the good things they may have brought in and the gentrification resulting problems that has have also come with that boom. Um, Seattle tried to pass a head tax um, to fund homeless services. It won and then was fought on repeal. Yes, this is right. It, it, uh, the council, the city council passed it. The mayor vetoed it. Okay. And then Amazon, and then there was a deal struck that Amazon supposedly agreed to. Um, and then said that if that deal went forward, they would put it on the ballot and the polling seemed to indicate that it might fail at the ballot. So the city council essentially repealed it. Do you think that Seattle should try and pass it again? Um, is, is it, what, what is the problem that you're trying to solve through the head yeah. tax in Seattle? Yeah, look, um, I have Amazon is right in my district. Uh, I have an enormous number of my constituents who work for Amazon. Um, what we have to understand is that when these big tech companies come in or big companies in general come in, they can dramatically affect the nature of a city through gentrification. Amazon brings in a lot of, there are a lot of jobs provided by Amazon. Um, a lot of the jobs in Seattle, this isn't true for all of the Amazon jobs, but in Seattle, they are headquarters jobs, management jobs. So they are extremely high paying. Those people come in and that, and they usually come from outside and that shifts the housing market. So all of a sudden, limited housing stock, rents are going up by 300% every day. And people who are from Seattle who aren't earning those salaries get pushed out. And there is tremendous displacement. So um, my belief is that when I went to business school a long time ago, <laughs> and I was taught about corporate charters, corporate charters, when they first emerged, actually required a company to do something as their number one priority to be able to provide benefit to the community that they were in. Boeing was sort of a company town. I mean, Boeing built a lot of the middle-class homes in Seattle. A lot of the middle-class workers were good union 
workers who worked at Boeing for generations. Um, there were limits on how much land a corporation could own, mm -hmm. for example. Your charter was limited. You didn't have an unlimited charter. You actually had to reapply for charters. So there were ways in which we said to corporations, look, you're an important part of our economy, but... Um, you too are responsible to this greater good that we are trying to create. That no longer exists. And so now you have Amazon paying zero in federal taxes. They will argue, as they have done directly to me, that they pay a lot in other taxes, but they're not paying their fair share. They're um, bringing a lot of benefits in, but they're also disrupting a lot of the economy. And so what I would like to see, and perhaps Salesforce did some of this in San Francisco, I only followed it a little bit from afar, but um, I would like to see our corporations being partners with us in addressing gentrification by investing in housing stock, paying fair taxes, helping us to advocate for policies like rent control, um, making sure that we are investing in, in um you know, supports for uh, for some of those who who are most disproportionately affected. That kind of partnership it doesn't really exist right now for too many companies. I will say that Microsoft is doing some pretty amazing things in Seattle that are newer, um, including their brand new climate initiative, which Did is they actually fight the head tax. What's that? Did they fight the head tax? I believe they. Uh, they, I believe they fought the head tax as well. Um, and so the question is, how do we make our corporate? I'm not positive about that, so I don't want anyone to, you know, find, tell me I'm wrong because I may be. Um, but how do we make our corporations partners in creating livable communities and livable societies so that we recognize that if you're creating a lot of jobs, but you are, as as Amazon is on a list of corporations that has, I think it's the seventh or eighth most number of employees that are actually on state-based Medicaid, then are we just subsidizing your jobs and we're paying for it, but Jeff Bezos is still doing, you know, making enormous amounts of money in the- He has two side-by-side mansions now in LA, so, I mean- right. So I just think we can, we can equalize wealth, right? We can equalize opportunity. That's the role of the government, in my opinion. So what is the mechanism by which you would do that? Because you're right that Mark Benahoff, the CEO of Salesforce here, you know, is our sort of good billionaire, um, came in and sort of helped pass various initiatives to alleviate the housing and homeless crisis um, and shame some of the other CEOs in to either helping or at least stop right. posing. But that's a terrible mechanism. It's a terrible mechanism. We need actual fair taxation. Um, in Seattle, we are the most, Washington State is the most regressive tax system in the country. We do not have a personal income tax. We only have sales tax. And we have property taxes, which are have been going up and up and up. So the majority of Washingtonians feel like they're paying too much because guess what? They are because we have the people at the very top who are not paying what they need. And that's true at the federal level. Trump just released his budget. He wants to put another, he wants to extend those tax cuts, originally $2 trillion of tax cuts for the wealthiest. He wants to extend that to another trillion and a half. So three and a half trillion dollars going to the top 1% or to stock buybacks, um, which is also the top 1%. Um, that's just absurd. We need investments in transportation, affordable housing, public education. These are the investments that will actually help our economy to grow, help our people to succeed, and ultimately help us to equalize opportunity and have an American dream like the one I had that is available to everybody. 
So it, it wasn't just Amazon, Microsoft, and Starbucks that opposed it, though. Some of the u- local unions did too. And was that out of a? F- were they persuaded that this could cost jobs? I think um, you know there is uh, labor is complicated. I come from a labor household. My my husband used to run the King County Labor Council for the AFL CIO, so I know this community incredibly well. Have worked so closely with them over the last twenty years. Um, there are splits, as you probably know, between some of the uh, building trades unions and kind of a lot of the rest of the labor movement. And I think that there was uh, the threat of Amazon to stop. Uh, building a number of the pieces of property that they had purchased in downtown Seattle and were committing to build, um, I think had some of the building trades afraid of what that would mean for them. Um, and so this is a conversation that we need to have to make sure we unite the, the labor movement um, and recognize that, you know, threats and bullying, unfortunately, might work in the short term. They can't work in the long term. In the, at the end of the day, workers need better opportunities to organize, more power, more ability to fight back um, and and actually determine the course of the future of their communities. So I've been grilling you on a local issue that you have no actual ability to affect, but what would the, uh, what would a federal law do to help, um, in the housing and homelessness? Like what what would you like to do on the federal level for that? Aside from just raising corporate. Yes. No, thank you. Because we just released our basic homes guarantee package. Um, a number of us in the progressive caucus representatives, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Blumenauer from Oregon, um, Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts and many others. Um, and it's a whole series of packages to get the federal government back into investing in affordable housing, of course, affordable housing stock, making sure that we are prioritizing rent vouchers, making sure that our homelessness strategy actually focuses on a housing first strategy combined with supports um, that are necessary to house people who are experiencing homelessness, focusing on racial inequities. Forty percent of those who are homeless um, Homelessness is not equal opportunity in that 40% of those who are experiencing homeless are, homelessness are black. Um, LGBT youth in particular also. So we need targeted strategies there. But it really is about the federal government seeing its role as assisting local and, and uh, local governments and, and state governments in addressing the, a lot of it is a lack of housing. So that has to be built and it's years of, um, ignoring that need that has now crept up on us. So both improving the federal housing stock, public housing, right. social housing, and improving the vouchers and pipe, pipelines. For- and targeted and targeted. There are a lot of targeted programs that could mm-hmm. be undertaken right now um, that don't necessarily require more money, but do require changing of how we address some of the situations. A tiny, very local example in Seattle. I think you have it in San Francisco as well. Um, Shelters, you know, didn't allow for couples to stay together, didn't allow for pets to come in. Some of the things that the federal government has instituted into our grant programs actually limit the ability for localities to address some of the very um, relatively easy things that they see need addressing. So there are some of those changes as well. Got it. So you are on the House Judiciary Committee. You've been busy. Yes. Um, 
let's stipulate, I think everyone in this audience probably would, that it was the, the morally right thing to do, the constitutionally appropriate thing to do. Do you think that it helped Trump? Impeachment. Mm-hmm. This president deserves to be deserved to be impeached. He deserves to be removed. And I don't think at the end of the day that this is a political decision. We take one oath when we come in, and it's to uphold the Constitution. And there is no way I'm going to bed and waking up in the morning and looking at myself in the mirror and saying I'm worried about whether this is going to help him or whether it's the politically right thing to do. I listened to eight months of testimony. I read the entire Mueller report three times. I um, I looked at all of the paperwork it's three around. times more than a lot of your a lot of people. Uh, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, and it's a real it's a real shame. Um, sat through incredible amounts of hearings, listened, read all of the testimony before the House Intelligence Committee since we on the Judiciary Committee had to actually pursue impeachment articles in our committee. And um, what this president has done is absolutely unconstitutional. There, there, you, you cannot look at the way in which he used his office for personal gain, political gain, and held up and devalued uh, any balance of powers. You know, we are, people say we're co-equal branches of government. Well, I believe Congress is at least a co-equal branch of government, but we're Article One. And the way in which the refusal to provide witnesses, the, the blocking of witnesses, the refusal to provide any documents to us is stunning. So will the House Judiciary Committee subpoena Bolton and Mulvaney and others now? I mean, now that the Senate has acquitted on this, is there something that House Judiciary wants to do or some members of it want to do? Where does that sit? Well, the first thing is that the, all the Republican senators, except for Mitt Romney, should be so ashamed of themselves. It, it is an outrage. And, <laughs> and everything that this president does from interfering in the sentencing of Roger Stone to removing prosecutors who or sidelining prosecutors who are investigating him and his family um, to starting illegal wars down the road to whatever he does with this election that is on the heads of these Republican senators. Um, that said, we are not going to stop uh, doing the oversight we can do. So we have Bill Barr coming into the Judiciary Committee in March. Um, but before then, we are going to have a series of hearings to specifically go into the sidelining of prosecutors, the interference of the um, sentencing of Roger Stone, um, and something else that I'm forgetting at this moment. And we will essentially be looking at the ways in which this Department of Justice under Bill Barr is being politicized and is being used purely for Donald Trump to achieve his goals. So we will continue to do that. I don't know what's going to happen with Bolton. Um, I know those discussions are ongoing um, with the speaker and let's see where we go with that. Uh, we were focused on the trial, but I don't think that we are, we're not stopping our, our oversight and investigation. Uh, I think that you guys have decided to call Bill Barr on the, on March 31st. And I'm curious, um, why so long? Is that because he was already scheduled to come in and you know he can't 
refused to come in for the thing he's already already scheduled to come in for basically okay so so because it seems to me that part of the problem and I, and I think the Trump administration has been very good at playing this and Barr has certainly been a big part of that is is uh controlling the momentum of what the committees do um famously of course he he um, summarized, uh, if that's the word we want, the, yeah. the Mueller report before yeah. um, it came he out. He lied about the yes. Mueller report for three <laughs> um, weeks. Yeah. But that he, they're very good at using the sort of processes that one side is abiding by and the other side is ignoring. Yeah. And you guys know this, obviously. What, what can you do to change that up? Or is that just sort of, you know? Well, I, um, I think... What I realized during the impeachment trial is that we may have come up against the limits of our Constitution and the limits of how our our founding framers envisioned a, a functioning government. I mean, I think that they actually, because I went back and I read in preparation for the for the trial, um, or not for the trial, but for our hearings, I went back and read a lot of the early speeches of our founding framers in debating the Constitution. And, you know, they were amazing. Like, they really debated all of the things that we were debating about whether there should be, you know, the ability for the House to do this in the Senate, what should be the process, all of those things. They envisioned a corrupt individual being in the White House, actually. Yes, they did. And we're very concerned about foreign interference. Very concerned about foreign interference. What they didn't envision is that an entire party would care nothing for the Constitution and the oath that they had sworn and instead bow down in compliance to that corrupt individual. Which is interesting. On the one hand, they didn't have parties. That's part of the reason. On the other hand, they did have a huge fracture within the Continental Congress and other over slavery, among other things. And so they did know that there could be such a divide. I mean, I don't want to go back and relitigate what the decisions. No, I mean, I think that's right. And you know what? I mean, all we can do is conjecture. But I don't. I I really believe that they felt so strongly. Maybe I'm putting my own immigrant experience onto this, but I believe that they felt so strongly about the development of this constitution and the development of the nation that they somehow did believe that it wouldn't be a majority of, let's not say a party, but a a side, a faction that would completely forget about the consequences of undermining that foundation. And, um, and that is, you know, I have a hard time looking at Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or many of these women who I thought had, um, had some real backbone to them in different, at different times. Um, I have a hard time thinking about bipartisanship when you have a side that refuses to look at the facts in front of them. And I have to say, I just have enormous respect for Mitt Romney and the way in which he analyzed the situation and, and the emotion that you clearly could see as he spoke on the floor about his obligation to God and to his oath. Yes, as the editor of Mother Jones, which published the 47% uh, tape, I will say I also admire yeah. him for what he did. You know, in that whole debate that um, we've heard from a lot of uh, Democratic senators that they say that their Republican colleagues, some of them, do think that Trump's a real danger to the country, think he should be removed, um, but are too scared to stand up against him. Has anyone ever said such a thing to you? And I'm also somewhat curious um, 
why the Democratic senators don't name some names? Um, nobody has ever said they think he should be removed. They're not, they're not running up to one of the heads no, of the progressive nobody has caucus said, and saying that. <laughs> no, but I will tell you that particularly early on in his term, in my first term, I heard a lot of people say, oh yeah, this is really terrible. And, you know, and I still hear people come up to me and say, I'm really sorry for this, or I'm sorry for that, or that was terrible, or I had to turn the TV off. I couldn't even let my kids watch and I have negative sympathy anymore for those people. Like none of that stirs any emotion in me anymore because I'm so tired. It's so hypocritical. You know, this is not, you're elected to Congress. There are 535 members of Congress and we represent 750,000 people in our district, except unless you're in Alaska or someplace like that. And I think if you don't have the courage to stand up for the Constitution and to do your job and to carry out your oath, then don't be in Congress. And um, I, I'm not I'm not persuaded by that I'm too scared to do this. You know, our country needs to be saved. We are watching our democracy crumble under our eyes. And democracy dies in daylight. It does not die in the shadow of night. It dies with people watching and deciding not to do anything. And so there is going to be a moment... <laughs> I hope it's not, I don't know when it'll be, but there will be a moment. I don't know why people aren't in the streets, honestly. I really, I don't know. It's a really interesting question. I mean, unpack that a little bit. Do you do you think that's because it's been three years and people have been in the streets a lot, and so it, it sort of gets to a point where it just feels like, you know, nothing matters is a, I, is I a think, common refrain. Yeah, I think that there's an exhaustion. There's a lack of hope for good reasons. Um, there is the crush of just your daily life for mm -hmm. so many people working multiple jobs um, and just trying to get by. Um, there is also, I think, perhaps an underlying belief that America is strong and will survive. And maybe I don't, maybe it doesn't need me right now. Maybe, you know, maybe in a year. Um, and I think that it's a combination of a lot of different things, but I would just say that what we're seeing right now after this impeachment, um, I, I have been telling people that we need to be ready for um, serious mass protests and, um, of course, using whatever tools of, of voting and, and government power we have left. So I think so much of that anxiety has sort of grafted on to the Democratic primary, right? Yep. Like this is now the one chance for people who think Trump is a danger to the country um, is that somebody else will uh, take it. So as as the head of the one of the heads of the Progressive Caucus, um, what do you want your caucus to do? What do you want the entire Democratic Party to do? Everyone talks about uniting behind the candidate, but that doesn't always happen, and the margins have been so small. Um, what's the messaging that needs to happen, and does it only need to happen once there is a nominee, or should it be ramping up? No, no. I really think that the only way we take back this country is by getting more people involved. Mm -hmm. um, we can't keep playing to a smaller and smaller group of people because, you know— we have had a strategy for quite some time in this country, Democrats have, 
of trying to get a narrow slice of voters that are in the middle who might be with us on one or two issues but are probably going to throw us under the bus on a bunch of other issues. Um, we, haven't we haven't moved past the myth of the likely voter to the truth of every voter. Um, we haven't really recognized and taken on some of the deep structural issues that cause people to vote for Donald Trump or to sit it out. Um, in 2016, for the first time in 28 years, Democrats lost the state of Michigan. For the first time in 32 years, we lost the state of Wisconsin. In Michigan, 98,000 people went out to the polls and voted for every line except the president. We don't know if they were all Democrats or Republicans. You know, it's not by party. Um, in Wisconsin, Bernie Sanders won 71 of 72 counties in Wisconsin. We have to recognize that changing the electorate and speaking to real structural change and having uh, a campaign that is driven by working people across the country that actually speaks to the suffering of people across the country is really, really important. But of course, we're going we're gonna to do everything we can, but we've got to provide some inspiration. And I will tell you that um, Telling young people across the country that they're too idealistic and that they, you know, we can't save the planet. It's not that urgent. We, we've got to be practical. You know, we can't take on college debt. We can't provide health care to everyone. That is not a winning strategy for getting people out. And it is incredibly dismissive to tens of millions of people across the country who are trying to have some hope about a future that frankly looks pretty hopeless for a lot of them. So we just want what our grandparents had, you know, the ability to have one job and come home at night, put food on the table, have some dignity and respect, know that you had a union that was going to fight for you, know that you could take care of your mother if she got sick, that you had a job that was actually going to provide some benefits for you, that you could go to college or send your kids to college. That's all people are asking for. It's really not that radical. It's actually just what it means to be a wealthy country, is to provide for everyone, not just a tiny few, but for everybody. So the, having a candidate who excites uh, voters is obviously very important, um, but there were other things at play in 2016. There was structural um, disenfranchisement in Wisconsin amongst many other places. There was in the Russian interference. There was, you know, what, uh, let's put the candidate aside. What, what are the things that worry yeah. you the most and, and that you think that voters aren't worried or savvy enough about? Well, yet? um, two, probably two things. Maybe I'll come up with those as others, but, um, election security, mm -hmm. I'm deeply worried about it. And Iowa didn't give me a lot of confidence. Um, but election security more broadly. And by election security in this case, you mean direct hacking? Direct hacking of systems, ability to track. You know, we have paper ballots mm -hmm. in, in Washington state, which gives us a check 
on what's actually happened. But we need, um, and you know, the states need federal government assistance. So we passed, Democratic majority mm-hmm. passed, uh, a big voting rights, uh, sorry, an election security bill that would put money into strengthening our election systems. Um, so I think that's very important. Um, but I also think that voting rights more broadly is very important. And dealing with gerrymandering, voter suppression, the state attempts to take, you know, to kick people off of rolls, um, those are things that need to be litigated in court in many instances, but also need to be protected through an expansion of the Voting Rights Act, which, again, our Democratic majority in the House passed. Um, but has been sitting in the graveyard. But that's not going to help us by 2020. No. By the and so a lot of it is happening in the courts. You know, we are starting to see litigation um, that Eric Holder and Barack Obama and others have put together some efforts to uh, to really go into states and sue on the basis of gerrymandered districts and um, other other things that prevent voters from from going to the polls. But that's really all we can do. I don't think that this Senate is going to pass any significant money to put into election security. Um, And I don't think that this president is going to stop asking foreign uh, countries to interfere in our elections. So everything we do is against that backdrop, and it's not going to be easy. Do you think that voters themselves are aware enough yet about how their perception of what's happening is manipulated through social media um, attempts by foreign, foreign governments or others? other bad actors? I don't think so. Um, I don't think people are aware enough. And if they are, and we're looking into this on antitrust um, committee, you know, within uh, within judiciary, um, a lot of people don't feel like they have options. So Facebook or Twitter becomes the way that they communicate. They don't have an option. And so we're looking at monopolistic practices Mm -hmm. of tech companies. Um, We have an investigation of tech companies going on right now. And I do think that these tech companies have an incredible responsibility that for the most part they have not lived up to. Um, and that's another area where I think they really can make a difference with some of their policies if they were willing to do so between now and the election. Doesn't, I haven't seen enough of that. Doesn't look good. No, <laughs> no. Um, you know, in the past year, you've disclosed two very personal things. The first is that your child is non-binary. And the second, that you, when they were born uh, very premature and were uh, very fragile for years afterwards. And so as a result of that, when you later got pregnant and were told by your doctor that that the second pregnancy would probably take that course, you decided to terminate that pregnancy. What was the response did, um, I'm sure it was varied, and I'm sure people used it in part to attack you. But what was the w- – tell me what that was like to share that kind of thing so personally. Um, you know, I think uh, I thought a lot about the the telling people about my abortion. Mm-hmm. I actually thought that through. I – um, wasn't sure I was going to do it. I haven't talked about it for a long time to anybody. Um, and I decided, and it was in the wake of the states passing anti-abortion bans, mm-hmm. um, or abortion bans. And, um, I just felt like I have this platform. It is a powerful platform and I should use it to tell the story so that, People understand that they can tell their story if they want to. They don't have to, but they can. It shouldn't require this in some ways. 
Um, but it does. That's the time we're in. And so I felt like I could have an impact with telling the story. And I, I sort of was on a plane to DC and I just wrote the piece and it came out in one fell swoop, like literally no edits. And I sent it to my friend, Elise Hogue, who runs NARAL. And she said, Pramila, it's beautiful, but it's, it's 1500 words. It's probably too long. The New York times will never take it. And cause I had decided I wanted it in a major publication. And I, and I said, well, I, I think I'll, I think I'll just try. Um, and I sent it off and they re- responded immediately and they cut about 300 words, but it was still, um, pretty, pretty huge for their, what they usually take. And I had to get additional security. We got additional security in place. We, we did a number of things, but the response was amazing. Um, so many emails, letters, uh, phone calls from across the country about people having conversations at their kitchen table and their mother or their sister or their friend suddenly disclosing that they too had had an abortion and what that meant for them. And um, I felt like that was the best thing that could have happened was for people to talk about it and not to feel ashamed about these choices that we have to make and not to feel like there's a good scenario for an abortion and a bad scenario for an abortion. Whatever your choices is, is what we're fighting for. We're fighting for that agency, for women to have agency over our bodies. And if the choice is not to have an abortion, that is deeply respected, as is the choice to have an abortion. Probably the best letter I got was from a Republican who is anti-abortion, who said that he opened the New York Times. He was a, must be a moderate Republican to, to be <laughs> reading the New York Times, but he opened the New York Times and he said he said that you know he was just uh, immediately saw my piece and was like, oh God, you know another baby killer or some some words that he used. I forget what they were. And um, he said, but then he read the piece and he said, I just want to tell you how deeply appreciative I am for the respect that you give every choice. Mm-hmm. And so that was really beautiful. Talking about my um, my 23-year-old who lives in Oakland, who I'll get to see tomorrow, um, was very different. I was not intending to talk about them. Uh, they had come out to me maybe six months before that. They were getting ready to release a, an album, and we had talked briefly about whether or not I should say something about them and talk about it. I think I'm the only member of Congress that has said that I have a non-binary child. And, um, and they had said, no, don't say anything now. I want, I, I want to be my own person. I don't want to be the person you talk about as your, you know, as a mom. mom. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, sure, fine. But we were debating the Equality Act in committee. And they were taught, the Republicans were talking about transgender people and non-binary people in such a horrendous way that I could just feel the rage in me. I was getting more and more and more angry. And so I texted Jenik and I said to them, I'm just feeling like I want to talk about you. Can I tell your story? You know, can I talk about you and can I tell your story? And then I immediately texted back and said, you know what? That's not fair. Forget about it. Whenever you're ready. And they texted me back with one question. They said, do you think it'll help people? And I said, I think it will, but it's totally your choice and we can do it in a planned way. We don't have to do it right now. And they texted back and said, no, I really don't want it in a planned way. If I want it to be organic and if it feels like it's going to help and it feels like the right thing, then go ahead. So I was so nervous about doing it that I wrote it on a piece of paper so that I could just 
I knew I was going to get really emotional talking about it, which I did. But, oh, my God, am I so happy I did. And to this day, people come up to me. They hug me. They give me. They say, you know, thank you. Some of them say my parents. I showed this to my parents because they've been having a really hard time with it. Um, people write to me and say, I never thought I would see a Congress member using the pronoun they. Um, I feel seen. I feel heard. And I think that is what I try to use this platform for is just to give some lift to the voices that are already there, but just aren't being lifted up in the, in the way that they should. And if I can do that, um, and if I can give people some sense that they are represented, that they're seen, that they're loved, that they're believed in, then, um, I think I'm doing a good job. The Equal Rights Amendment. Where are we with this? Yes. Joyful. Um, <laughs> we've had so much bad news <laughs> on the stage. But um, no, we just passed the bill to extend the deadline for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment in the House. And as you know, Virginia became the 38th state in the country. And so um, we have now passed that bill in the House. Of course, it needs to go to the Senate. We did get five Republicans to vote for it, including Jeff Van Drew, who was a Democrat who became a Republican. But five Republicans voted for the bill. And um, now, of course, it would have to go to the Senate to be approved. And I would just hope that some of the women senators over there would want to be able to say we have enshrined equality of sexes, that equality of sexes does not have an expiration date. And it is time for the United States of America to enshrine that in our Constitution. Yes. <laughs> um, we've talked about this in terms of housing, but as, as a last question, I always put this to policymakers because I, I believe that, especially in time when they're talking about big sweeping structural changes, there's also a part of every policy geek who loves to go on about some little thing that is not really well known or understood, but could make an outsized difference. Um, so I'm curious what, what tweak or unknown lever that you would like to pull. Well, this is, this is a, both a small and a big thing, but, um, in my first, uh, term in Congress, my um, then legislative director's mother, he is also South Asian American, um, died very suddenly of a heart attack. And I, um, we started looking into it. He really started researching it. And we found that heart disease in the South Asian community is, it is the fastest growing in the mm -hmm. South Asian community. Um, you know, we desis think we're very healthy. We often are vegetarians. We eat dal and vegetables and things like that. And it was stunning to me to see what a huge problem heart disease is in the South Asian community. And so I have a bipartisan bill called the South Asian Heart Health Bill that I am uh, trying to push forward. And um, it's really about giving the CDC the tools to help bring this information to South Asian communities uh, across the country. And I'm very passionate about it and, and trying to move that forward. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think that the beauty of this job is that um, I'm in my 50s and I feel like I learn so much every day. There is just something, and I'm a policy wonk. I mean, I'm kind of a nerd. I like to know all the details of things. And 
it's such an incredible honor to get to learn about Sudan on the one hand, Kashmir, which I know about already, but from a different perspective, you know, heart health, housing. Um, and so there are a million of those things, but what a privilege it is to use the platform to try to move some of these things that we see wrong and try to fix them. Um, I, I just, I love that. That's a very optimistic note to end on, which I know we all need. So um, on behalf of myself and the Commonwealth Club, I'd like to thank you very much for coming out and talking to all of us tonight, um, this afternoon, I guess. Uh, and thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a wonderful interviewer. Sure. <laughs>